Father, would you uh, open our ears and our minds and our eyes and our hearts uh, that we might receive you and behold you and um, increase our trust in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, so, so I'm going to be talking today about how do we know that our faith is real? How do we know that God is real? And I'm not here, I'm not going to prove anything to you. This is not going to be a philosophy uh, course or anything like that. But what do we do with when we do doubt? When we go through um, times of even just curiosity, wondering, is this unseen God whom I believe in real? And what, what are we basing our certainty on when it comes to our faith? And you know, the Apostle Paul, I mean, he says God dwells in unapproachable light. So there's an aspect of this that is distant from us. It's God is other. He's wholly other from us. And so um, that's part of the difficulty, I think, though, of faith especially in a post-enlightenment world like we live in, where uh, there's different types of knowledge that are held up as approaching certainty or things that we can actually trust and verify. And one of those is just empirical evidence, right? Scientific fact, things that we can, by sensory experience, we can verify their existence or their truth, we can analyze and evaluate. um, And... That's more about data, right? It's about information. It's about um, figuring out things of fact. Um, also, part of our knowledge base is built just on rationality, which is a logical understanding of things. And um, both of those, empirical data, empirical knowledge and uh, rational knowledge, they, they entail a certain level of certainty which claims to avoid speculation, claims to things that are questionable are put in one category, but things that we know, this table is made of wood (laughs) or is hard, these are things that we can say, well, we can say undeniably these are true facts. And so faith and trust in an unseen God doesn't tend to fit in that category. And so it's no wonder that at times people really struggle with the questions. And... But part of the problem with, a, with comparing faith, religious faith, with things of factual nature is that we get to be in control of the questions. We get to be in control of all the operations of determining what, what is verifiable to us. Um, we're trusting our senses to give us correct information. And... Uh, we get to then kind of deem what's most important in the questions that we ask and the questions that we bring to the table. Um, so so I, I hear it said, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, oh, when I see it, then I'll believe it. And I think um, there's some interesting pictures of Jesus in the Gospels that helps us maybe grasp and wrestle with that idea, that, that claim that I'll believe it when I see it. And you might remember Jesus oftentimes after he performs a miracle, after he does a healing, um, after he multiplies the fish and loaves, um, he tells people, he warns them, do not, do not tell anyone about this. Don't, don't go tell people about this. 
And, you know, there's, there's a lot of speculative answers on why he would do that. The timing wasn't right. He still had much ministry and work to do. He was ultimately going to the cross. Um, he didn't want to be made king by force. But I think one of the reasons underlying that is really that um, Jesus knew that sensory experience alone doesn't yield trust. Um, you know, and this is true in our world. Like, think of somebody who's, uh, who has a fear of flying or a fear of roller coasters or somebody that smokes cigarettes. <laughs> there are, you know, there's warning on the packaging of cigarettes. There is every, nobody is ignorant of the fact that perhaps it's not a healthy practice and it can cause cancer. Yet that knowledge doesn't, there's something that's overridden when it comes to the rational trust of that data in terms of what they do with it. People have seen airplanes take off and land perfectly safely. That, in fact, that's the vast norm. Yet, people can be afraid of flying. Or they've seen other people in the line go on the roller coaster ride. Yet, when it comes their turn to sit on there, they're a nervous wreck because they are just fearful of it. Even though their sensory experience has, has told them, this is, in fact, trustworthy ride. <laughs> Everybody else is on it. It's fine. Um, Jesus, uh, in John 6... He does the multiplying of the fish and the loaves, and he feeds 5,000. And it's an astounding miracle. And yet, he begins to teach after that about how in order to partake in his life, you need to actually eat his flesh and drink his blood. And people begin to leave from the crowd. People have just seen this amazing miracle. They've witnessed God breaking through in history. And yet, they can't stomach some of the things Jesus is saying. They walk away in disbelief. Um, and Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Well, what about you? Aren't you going to leave too? You know, he goes from a crowd of 5,000 men, plus women and children, to basically his 12 disciples. He's like, What about you guys? And Peter turns to him and says, Well, Lord, where else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Um, so it's not just the sensory experience of I see it when I believe, or I'll believe it when I see it. That actually is true for us. Uh, we're more complex creatures than that. It's, it's not that easy. Um, it's about more than witnessing signs and wonders. And so that's part of our uh, Western post-enlightenment world, trusting in, um, you know, Rene Descartes, you know, his, his error, you know, I think, therefore I am. A lot of people will say that um, as th it was a quest for certainty. And our world is, is yearning and longing to know with certainty things, to, to have solid base from which to come from. But that's, um, that's really built on a Western idea of independence, that we can be an independent seeker of truth. Um, and we can do that independent and on our own. But the truth is... What scripture teaches us is that faith is not lo a logically demonstrable reality. Um, the definition the Bible gives of faith is from Hebrews 11. gives one. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. The assurance of things that are hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. There, there's a future orientation, actually, to, the, to faith. There's a future orientation to knowledge even of God um, because we are eschatological creatures at our core 
the eschaton is the end of ages. Eschatology is the study of the end of the end of time when Jesus returns. Um, that's what we're geared towards, um, and all people of all cultures at all times have an eschatological um, hope. Um, and so faith, then, for us, it's a total commitment by very fallible human beings. All of us are, are fallible. Um, we're putting trust in a God who says he's faithful and who has called us to be his own. And that's a risky thing. Um, it does require some action on our, be- on our part. It, uh, just as me sitting in this chair requires me trusting Okay, this is going to hold me up. I'm not going to fall flat on the floor and hurt myself. You know, this is I'm going to rest on this. Um, faith is, in a sense, a a taking um, taking God at His word and, and resting on His promises, which is scary because that's something that's coming from outside of us. It's not necessarily something that internally is prompting us. Um, it's actually, it's, we're being called and summoned from outside ourselves, to, and we're having to make a choice, always. Um, and in that sense, it's a relational knowledge. It's not empirical, it's not um, even logical necessarily, but it's relational, because God is a person. <laughs> God is people too, you know, and so we're having to um, trust him just as you have to trust and relate to and interact with other people, um, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, and so there's, there's, a sense, there's a humility that we have to begin with, where we have to understand we're bringing questions, but we're not, able to, we're not just independent, coming in like um, doing an inquisition on God, fact or fiction. You know? uh, there's a relational piece to that. And the Bible... And Jesus, in particular, is bringing us questions. You know, just like in John six, what about you? <laughs> Will you also leave? Um, he asks, "Who do you say that I am?" He's asking us questions, so it's a dialogue. It is um, we're having to be engaged by a story. And that's the truth: is we're not the open and on- open-minded and honest seekers of faith or seekers of truth, rather, um, because we're just not the center of the universe. The, the narrative of the Bible starts in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve disobeying God and God walking in the cool of the day and asking, Adam, where are you? He's asking us the question because we're lost and need rescued. We have run from him. Uh, we naturally do not trust him. <laughs> That's part of our very nature. So it's almost as though we have to go against ourselves, against maybe our intuition at points, to trust God. And that's because we've been ruined by sin. Um, But that highlights the mystery, I think, of the incarnation and the cross, that God draws near to us, um, though we're separated from him. That there is this mystery of holiness that embraces sinners. Um, There's a mystery of a Lord who is God of the universe yet becomes the servant of all. He gets down on bended knee and washes his disciples' feet. And that's helpful to me because it, it helps me see that revelation, the Bible, God's revelation to us, it's not just information. 
Um, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to relationship. Um, which is why if we go to the Bible going, I've got questions, sometimes that can be helpful, but sometimes it can just be more confusing or even um, it seems audacious. <laughs> you know, the claims that are made in the Bible. And Leslie Newbegin, who's a missiologist, he did mission work in India and came back to Britain, and he wrote a number of books on how faith relates to life. And uh, he said this, he said, Faith is the only certainty... Because faith involves personal commitment. Um, he's actually he, he did a lot of work to try to um, to unmask how the um, modernist um, post enlightenment approach to understanding and knowledge actually rests in faith. It actually you have to start from a position of of doubt, in essence, in order to know anything. Um, and so. It's not, it's not this like cool, detached um, analyzation or evaluation, uh, but it's actually personal commitment to something. And even people that say they don't have faith, they're actually placing their faith in their ability to discern what is true and what is not, which is a risk in and of itself, right? Um, and, and the world we live in, it, it certainly privileges a certain type of knowledge. It privileges a math or a science type of knowing because it's geared towards this supposed certainty that we can have a test tube understanding of the world <laughs> and we can come to prove things that are absolutely true. Um, but I think the story of Scripture and who we are as people being made in God's image, God is intrinsically relational. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in perfect communion throughout all eternity. Um, the most important types of knowing aren't necessarily factual information, but they're actually relational knowing. Um, so 2 plus 2 equals 4 is really helpful, and it's demonstrable and testable, um, but it may not be the most important kind of knowledge we have, because empirical evidence like that or... Um, logical knowledge, it doesn't always answer questions like, am I loved? Like, is a piece of music stunningly beautiful? Is gazing at a sunset um, evoking something in me or pointing me to something bigger and truer? Um, answering questions of purpose. Why am I here? What am I made to do? You can't arrive at, at answers to those things through factual knowledge. Um, and so, so it seems there's a bigger kind of knowledge, a relational kind of knowledge. And what it entails from us is not, it's not just a blind leap into the dark, though it might feel like that at points. It requires from us a holy curiosity to move towards uh, things that we have questions about. Not to try to cover them up or keep them locked away in the closet because they're scary, um, because that doesn't scare God. Uh, the whole book of Job is Job wondering and questioning, bringing question after question to God. Why? 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 And the hard thing about the book of Job and what it's teaching is, is not that you come away with this neat answer, but God, the, the, two, of the two of the chapters at the end of Job is God basically saying, where were you, Job? 
when I separated light from darkness? Where were you when I made all the fish in the sea? Where were you when I made all the, um, you know, all the plants in the world? Where were you when I made the, the birds? Um, he answers his question with questions. And that's what Jesus does, doesn't he, in the Gospels? People bring him questions, and he turns them around and asks them questions. Seems Because the questioner actually has to answer to someone bigger. And that's, that's the truth for us, is we have to risk and trust because it's a relationship. Um, and the scripture from beginning to end is one story, and it's not timeless principles that are meant to be sectioned out as here's some gold nuggets of truth for you. Though there are aspects to the Bible and its teaching that can be helpful in that sense. It's not what it's meant to be. It's meant to be a story. Um, and it's meant to call us to personal commitment. And so it's like what we just did in worship in there. And I'm always caught off guard by this, how the service starts for Holy Communion, you know, blessed be God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then um, Almighty God unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's what we say. We say that to start the service. Um, we're, in, we, we're kind of confessing that we are small and he is big, that there's nothing that's mysterious to him. Yet we're somehow gathering in worship in the name of Christ, recognizing our first confession. is All, all that we are is laid open and bare before this unseen, mysterious God. <laughs> and we are trusting and putting ourselves in that vulnerable position with our palms up going, we enter in here knowing that we can't hide from you. Knowing that there's something bigger that we're coming into. All our desires are known. No secrets are hid here. Um, you know, I think there's just times where that just arrests me. And it's like, what else do we need to do in worship? <laughs> Other than sit before that. And obviously, um, Part of relational knowing is an integrated sense of it's not just abstract truths that we claim and have in our brain and hold, uh, but it, it requires things of us. It requires movement on our part. It requires confession. You know, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the, from the dead, you'll be saved. Um, and if you just think about walking through the liturgy of the worship service. Um, there's standing, there's singing, raising our voices to different pitches and levels. There's um, kneeling down in a contrite action of prayer. Uh, there's using our bodies. We're walking, we're going forward to receive the elements. And then God communicates to us in the most simple way. It's not, it's not just through a teaching, but it's through receiving bread and wine. Very simple you know, eating and drinking, things that we all do every day to be sustained. And that's part of the way we know God is through the sacraments, through water being poured, through food being ingested. Um, and he is mysteriously present in that. And it's trustworthy. Um, because the truth is we are liturgical animals. We are created to have our own liturgies. And there's there's liturgies of the church, but there's also every people always have had liturgies. 
Um, there's a liturgy even now, if you think about it, of the mall. Uh, th- there's a certain way in which, the, in the consumeristic world, um, how we go out to a shopping center and walk through. There's just a certain liturgy that goes with that. There's a certain liturgy of a stadium when you attend a football game. Um, these things shape us and they mold us. And um, the Bible says that we become like what we worship, um, that those who make idols will become like them. So things that we engage, not just in our minds, not just what we think, but actually how we go about them. So you just think about the rhythm of your week and the ways you spend your time and the places you go and how you go there and where those are in relation to you and the people you interact with or avoid <laughs> interacting with. Uh, you know, we all we're, we create patterns and ways of being, ways of inhabiting the world, ways of knowing and engaging or not engaging our world. Um, the same is true with God. There are ways we um, actively choose to engage with Him, and then very actively or even just passively seek to avoid. Um, but nothing is hidden from Him. And that's scary, <laughs> but it also can be comforting. Um, look with me real quick for the last few minutes at Luke 24. So this is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Or sorry, well, it is Jesus, but the men he comes up upon do not know that. This is page 756, Luke 24. And in this Bible, you'll see in verse 13, on the road to Emmaus is what it says there. So... Um, So it says, that very day, two of the men, this is after Jesus has been crucified, and um, it says, uh, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, You are the only visitor, you, or are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to him, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, the, I mean it's kind of comical, right? Mm-hmm. It's Jesus, and they're going, But this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, you know? Um, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before all God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it has now been the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So they're telling him all the things, of course he knows, but this is what people are talking about. I mean, he was killed and now somehow he's not there. Um, The tomb's empty. And so Jesus responds by teaching them. He says, um, oh, you foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe all uh, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
And so they have this amazing conversation and interaction with Jesus. They don't even know it. The second person in the Trinity is right there on the dusty road as they walk to this town. And they're kept from understanding it. They're kept from perceiving it. They're kept from um, being able to say with certainty, this is who this is. And yet, later on, they share meal. And it's when he breaks bread with them. It says in verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? There's this unveiling. This, uh, their hearts are burning within them. And they recognize something that's true, but it's almost after the fact that they're able to point back out, that's what that was. God was with us. He was with our, in our presence. We just had God's knees were under our table. And we missed it. But wasn't it wonderful? And aren't we glad? And they go from there and they rejoice and tell the other disciples. Um, but there's a sense in which for you and me, um, we have to... Um, recognize that the inbreaking of the gospel of Jesus coming to us, Emmanuel, God with us, um, it's something we do have to receive in trust. It's not something that we can base base purely on our circumstances or on how we feel how close God feels to us. Um, because scripture over and over again surprises people are surprised how God interacts with them. Um, they find themselves to be, they're blinded at one point and then they are made to see or made to understand at another point. And even one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas, doubting Thomas. I, all of us are doubting Thomas, you know? I mean, that's, as he gets this bad rap. You know, he wasn't the only one who was like, really, you know, not... He hadn't gotten to see Jesus yet. You know? So he said, well, when I believe it, I'll see it. And he did get to see, and he got to touch. Jesus held out his nail wounds, the pierced wounds on his hands and his feet, and the, where, he was, um, where the spear went into his side. And Thomas's reaction wasn't, I'll believe it when this is completely confirmed. We're going to send this away to a lab. We're going to, you know, I need, I need to make sure. Because it doesn't make sense. Even if he did touch Jesus, it had to have blown his mind. Dead people don't come back to life. It just doesn't happen. And so, um, even that was an act of faith to go. And he, what does he do? He falls down on his knees. says, my Lord and my God. He is, he is um, bowled over at the wonderfulness of it, at the mystery of it. It is bigger than him and is above him and beyond him. It's not something he can just grasp and own as information and feel like he's a master of. He actually has to submit himself underneath the truth of what he encountered and go, it's bigger than me, it's above me. Um, and then, so, this is, we're looking kind of back, right? We're looking back at recorded history and recorded scriptures. Um, some of the scriptures point us forward, though. Um, I just want to run through a couple real quick. Romans chapter 8. Paul says, What is seen is not hope. 
For who hopes what, for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. First um, Corinthians 13. Now we know in part, we see as through a glass darkly, but we shall see him as he is. There's a partiality to our knowledge. We're just like the Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. We're like Saul on the road to Damascus. You know, we're 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 unaware. Jesus himself said in John 14, "I'm going to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. I'll come back, and you can be with me." Um, over and over again, Scripture reiterates to us that we're living in the gap. We're living between the already and the not yet. Um, and where are we in the story? Uh, all we know is we're somewhere in between. <laughs> we're on the journey. And so that's what we are all called to be. We're called to be pilgrims. We're called to be learners to the end of our days. So it doesn't mean check our brain at the door. It doesn't mean push questions back into a closet. But it does mean relate to God um, in humility and uh, recognizing that there might be something that's bigger than you can see. Um, and I like the illustration of, like, take, take a moon at night when you're looking at the moon and you see a sliver, a crescent. Would you say that is a whole crescent? Or would you say it's a partial orb? Because part of the moon is hidden. You know, it, it's a shadow effect. It's the light from the sun, actually, reflecting off the moon. It's not even the moon that's lit. But to us and to our experience, um, it looks like, oh, I see a crescent in the sky. But it's actually a partial thing because something's hidden. Um, and that's, that's the reality is because we are warped um, by sin. Um, it makes knowing God feel more like a fight oftentimes than it does feel like easy, natural recognition of something that's true. It feels more like a fight. And that's the truth. Beth will sometimes use the term shadow boxing. You know, like sometimes we're just boxing with our shadow. And I think sometimes we're boxing with God's shadow. Um, and that's what knowing him is like. It's not easy, um, as Mark preached about. Uh, it's, it's about being in the in-between. Um, and we are ultimately like the woman who came to Jesus who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, that, is, that is where we are living. And the promise is one day, Isaiah 11:9 says that the whole earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It, what, what is partially hidden now or mostly hidden now will one day be made fully, plainly seen. Um, we will behold it and we will be in awe. And that's the story of Scripture to us. So, but we're, until then, we're longing to know. So... We've run out of time, and uh, but I do appreciate y'all. Is there? Do you have? Is there any? Can I answer your question right now about you know how do I know God exists? But do you have any? Um, is there a thought or a question right now that you'd like to put out there before we leave? I don't remember what that new vision quote was, but I got a little stuck on it. Yeah. Yeah, about faith being personal commitment. Where is it? Um, faith is the only certainty because faith involves personal commitment. Yeah, 
you got stuck on it because <laughs> it just didn't make sense. I mean, I, there's something intuitively that makes sense about it, but I don't. Mm. I don't rationally and logically understand. Well, that's the thing because <laughs> faith isn't certain, right? I think that's part of what he's saying. Is you know all these people that say they have factual knowledge based on a Descartian view of you know like that's the Enlightenment was like this sense of certainty. He's saying the only certainty you have is faith. And it means it's in the personal commitment part means it's a risk. It's a risk. Like everybody's taking a risk. Most people just don't think they are because they're trusting something, whether intuitively or logically. Um, but ultimately they're placing a trust. Albert Einstein said about math, mathematics, he said mathematics is only certain in an abstract form. Once it hits the real world, it's no longer certain. But we, it's certain, you know what I mean? But it's just not, it's more, it's more, math is much more difficult to deal with in the real world. That's why. Um, so anyway, that's, but yeah, that's something that you want to think about and talk about. Well, go forth in his peace to love and serve the Lord.